I have referenced someone who became a little bit of a celebrity a while ago. I've mentioned her a couple times. Her name, her stage name was Nightbird. And she became popular because of a stint that she had on America's Got Talent. Not just because of her talent, though. It was largely because of her story. See, when she appeared, she was, she was rather thin, having uh, dealt with cancer for a while. And as she announced even to the judges, she had a 2% chance of living at that point. Her story, because she was a believer, uh, echoed out in the Christian community pretty well. But beyond that, it, it struck people. And as I was exposed to both the song that she sang and uh, some of her writings, I was really captured by the way that she endured pain, the way that she endured loss, the way that in the midst of being sick and dealing with the fact that her husband then decided to leave her, she still resonated a hope that was not sapling kind of hope, but in her short years had grown some real roots and become a very resilient oak in the forest of God's people. I'm going to read to you the beginning of one of her blogs uh, we'll link to all of these in the email later on today because I find them to be really encouraging, but difficult. In the midst of cancer, she wrote the following. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and six weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone, but when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic across my body. I spent three months propped up against the wall. On nights that I couldn't sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect staring at the, my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe and on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick, I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I stick my head under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for them. They are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. 
Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout that said, I'm sad too. That's a small sample of what it's been like for her pain to be preserved in almost narrative poetry, really. This autobiographical sense of her suffering and struggles are the kinds of things that I don't know that I can relate to. I can preach using her story as an example, and I'm grateful to be able to do that. But to say that I can understand this is ridiculous. And that's the way that I feel approaching Psalm 22. Frankly, it's the way that I've felt as we've approached all of these psalms together. In fact, just listening to one of the Bible Project's videos on the whole book of Psalms, one of the points that he makes is that there are two main types of Psalms, of praise and lament. And they have an inverse relationship in terms of their proportion in the Psalms. In the very beginning, in books 1, 2, and 3 in particular, there's a disproportionate amount of lament and then at the end, there's a lesser proportion of lament and an increasing amount of praise. It's, a, it's an amazing way for the book to be structured because what it does in the very beginning of reading it is say, God's not afraid of how you feel when you're in pain. God's not offended by how you feel when you deal with injustice and unrighteousness. And in truth, I hope that these last three psalms that we've gone over have at least opened the door to that, if not put a wedge in that door, so that it would never feel like God shuts the door on you when you suffer. Because it's been said, if you're not suffering now, or you can't point to the past when you've suffered, everyone can at least say this, prepare yourself for you will. And that's because no one who's ever come before us hundreds of years before us, is still with us. At some point, sin hits us to the point that we lose our lives, we die, we end here. And what we've done in trusting God with difficulty now resonates into eternity. And since we will suffer, since some of you have suffered, and because some of you are suffering I hope that we can read this last psalm, David's struggles in Psalm 22, and that you can bear with me just reading for you for a while, because I think there's something about hearing these words fresh, and again, and again, that in the repetition reminds us God is not afraid of how you feel when you suffer. So unafraid is he that when David was suffering, and I wish we had the context. It's nice when you get little notes at the top of a psalm that say, this happened when this happened. There's a lot of moments we could point to. Maybe David's life with Saul. Maybe David's life with one of his other enemies. Maybe at some point there was somebody wagging their heads at David and mocking him. We just don't know when that was. But in some sense, that's also kind of helpful because it reminds us that your story doesn't have to look exactly like David's in order for these words to inspire your words. His 
faith can be your faith. His struggle can be words for your struggle because oftentimes when we're suffering, we don't have our own words. How great is it in this collection of 150 Psalms? We've only tagged into four here. To have such a proportionate amount of times when God's people under the inspiration of God's spirit have come into God's presence and said, enough, seriously, enough. What is going on right now? And even as we've recognized from the book of Revelation, to see that that is a condition of those that suffered on the earth and are in God's presence presently and are asking, how much longer does Babylon the beast get to harm God's people on the earth? How much longer does sin have its reign? How much longer will I suffer? If you've ever asked the how long or felt the pain of wondering what endurance has to look like as a believer, I do hope that you've learned to read the Psalms a little bit more honestly with a little bit more permission. We don't have to be all tidied up. We can be snotty and messy. We can struggle, in the words of Nightbird, on the bathroom floor and realize that in these Psalms we meet God, once again, and that's what I hope happens as we look at Psalm 22 slowly and carefully. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it over a couple times. We're going to pause a little in the middle, and then we're going to ask some questions for ourselves. We're going to focus our attention in the beginning on verses 1 to 21, and then we'll, we'll join into the end at the end. So we're going to ask this essentially, we're going to look at this essentially through the, lie, the eyes of David who composed it. And though we often look at things in the order of the verses that are there, I think the conclusion of David's experience is represented by what he says in the beginning. So we're going to look at that at the end. In fact, we're going to take a look at the middle of the danger that David was in, feel the sense of how he was despised, and then ask a question of why he really felt so disregarded. But to be honest, I think the why of that is kind of obvious as we just look at the danger. So look with me in verses 12 to 19 of David in danger. He says, using animal imagery, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. But I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Notice the characters that already start to emerge as David describes his danger. And since we're thinking about water, I'm just going to um, get a little. You have David, David without strength, David without bones, David without a heart, David melted inside himself, a hollow shell of a man without spine, backbone, guts, none of that original language that we'd be talking about, courage, none of that, it's all gone. If David asks what's inside me at this point, he is feeling weak, waxy weak, out of joint, weak, water, weak. And his strength is gone. He has no ability to speak. He has no ability even to stand. Oh, that's so smart. What? 
All right, well, I'm going to finish this one. He can't even stand up. But where is he in the dust? Why is he in the dust? Second character. You lay me in the dust of death. See, in the middle of his weakness, David knows the reason he's there isn't the others. They're the third character, the bulls, the bulls of Bashan, the strong bulls of Bashan, verse 12. But the, the other character is the one who's actually laid him in the dust. It's the one he's talking to. You're the one who's set me here right now. This is your doing. You're the one I'm talking to. This is not a psalm written to bulls. Or to use the language of verse 14, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But he's not talking to them. He's talking about them, but not to them. His great energy is directed, verse 19, you, O Lord. You laid me here. You wiped me out. You laid me down. And you feel like you've left. And I've had enough. Verse 19. You, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my boneless, watery, waxy Aid. I am laid down in the dusty death of my life, surrounded by danger that looks like just dogs and bulls that are all around me. There's, there's unique language in the middle of this that makes it kind of difficult at times to be able to translate. And if you were to dive into some of the translation, you could appreciate that. Given my lack of scholarliness, and despite Michael's attempts to try to help me with this, just trust this is a pretty reasonable translation, but there's a lot going on in the midst of it. But what comes across through all of it, this boy is weak, this boy is weary, and this boy is sick of it. And he's ready for God to do something. Because the enemies are with me, but it appears from verse 19, he's not aware that God is. So we don't know how, I like Michael's point last week as we're reading, right? We're trying to read words in, in, in articulate ways. If we read this in context, it might feel a little messy. Verse 19 might not come across in perfect oratorial style. It may be this throat cracking, nose running, kind of, you, O oh Lord, be not far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And if you have trouble thinking of David's words with that emotion, just try to link into the last time you felt that emotion. And it might not have been more than a squeak out of your soul, but I think there are moments all of us can say, it feels like God's at work in others and not in me. It feels like the promises of God are true for others and not for me. In fact, if we were to try and diagnose, which is a dangerous thing for a preacher to do for a group of people, but if we were kind of to try and diagnose a commonality among those of us that have struggled with depression or anxiety, it's often that 
resonant sense that what's true is true for everyone, but I've been disqualified. Something about me makes this not stick to me. Maybe it's the waxiness of my soul, the wateriness of my soul, the dustiness of the death around me, or the enemies that are making it impossible for my voice to rise to God. But he seems to care about everybody else but me. That's the way depression seems to work. That's the way anxiety seems to work. I don't get to claim what others enjoy about God. And this stinks. This sucks. This, you use whatever fill-in-the-blank word you might use, but I'm going to guess it's pretty messy when you're saying it and feeling it. And God told David to write it. This is David in danger. But it's not just David in danger. We also have David despised. Look at verses 6 and on. Right before that, I am a worm. <laughs> wow, you're doing good with this animal imagery here. I am not just a man laid in the dust. I am a creature of the mud. I am a worm, not a man. Why? Because I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by others. It's not just generally. It's not just faceless humanity out there that I'm referencing, God. I'm talking about the people who are around me. All those who see me, verse 7, mock. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And here are their words. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And yet, since we're doing it backwards, this is the second time it shows up in the psalm. You'll see it in a minute. The second time, starting in verse 9, he turns from his experience, which is wretched if we're just being honest, right? If any of us were to meet David in this sense, we'd all have the impulse of Job's friends, right? Sit for a while, speak, and get you out of this. Because this just feels so uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable for you. But frankly, me being around you, I feel uncomfortable. I just like this to be done. I'd like to be able to use my words to fix it, get us out of it. Let's just be, let's just be done with it, right? And maybe that's part of David's own kind of mindset when he moves into verse 9. He, he tries to turn to something a little more positive. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you, verse 10, I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. You hear the wrestling going on? It's, it's almost as though David doesn't really need a counselor to come and, and, you know, meet him. He doesn't need somebody else to start speaking to him because there's a certain sense or in him. He's already feeling it right now. He's already trying to contradict this tension inside of him. God, be not far from me because I remember you from my past. You raised me up for something different than this. From the very beginning of my life, you were here to help, to teach, to instruct. I was cast on you from birth and you've been my God. So what's up? If, if, if this is really our relationship, this is the way you treat your people? I mean, I've read the Proverbs. I've seen the stories. I know how this works. You curse the unrighteous and you bless the righteous, right? So what's up? Because all David is hearing is not God's voice, but the voice of mockers 
mouth makers, head waggers, right? All who see me mock, they make their mouths, they wag their heads, and they mock my words. I delight in God, do you? Or in the question of Job, do you like the life God gives you? Do you like God? Do you delight in God or do you delight in the benefits that come from following him? That's the question that starts to emerge here as we hear the accusations. So David's in danger. He's also despised. And as we can kind of tell, his last problem is the way he introduces the whole psalm. He feels disregarded by God. It's why he says in 11 and 19, be not far off. Why? Because it feels like God is far off. And so his whole accusation against God is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Here's what he's not asking. Are you far from me? You know, there's a difference in the way we can ask questions, right? We can ask our questions with assumptions underneath them, or we can ask questions about our assumptions. This is not a question about an assumption. God, I'm feeling a little distant. I'm feeling like you're not here. I'm curious if you're around. That's not this question. This is an accusatory question. It makes an assumption about God. God, you have abandoned. God, you have forsaken. So my question is why? It's not if, it's why. Why is it that you've forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Oh God, verse 2, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And I cry by night, but I'm finding no rest. And right in the beginning, we get the same sense of tension that we just saw a little bit after this, right? He's course correcting. He's talking about him. And in verse 3, he then starts to try to course correct. But <laughs> you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. And our fathers trusted in you. They cried out. And when they cried out, they were rescued. I have heard the stories. The stories from my mother's breasts and on. From the womb and on. When I was not even able to understand the stories, I was hearing the stories. They cried, you rescued. That was the deal. They trusted and they weren't put to shame. So what's up? That's David. Verses 1 to 19. We took it backwards, but now hear it the way that it's delivered. David feels disregarded by God, not asking if he is, but feeling like he is. Why? Because he can't hear God. Instead, what does he hear? He hears all the despising words of everyone around him. And those are all happening because David has absolutely nowhere to go. David is in the picture of military strategy of the day. He is a walled-in city with no allies, no help, and nothing but an army around him taunting him as they prepare the barricades to break him down. They've starved him out. He's done. He's got no strength to defend himself. His walls are crumbling around him and they are ready to come in and take him out. And they're mocking him as they go. And David's whole question in the beginning is 
Why? I'd rather read the next psalm, wouldn't you? Psalm 23? Wouldn't that have been a more pleasant choice for today? Isn't it the one that you feel sometimes, when you feel 22-ish, there's part of you that feels like you should feel 23-ish, but you're not quite there? Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. (laughs) Yeah, right. I am nothing but want. I am waxy, watery want right now, God. And God told David, write this down. Teach my people to sing when they feel this way. This is why we spent January this way, guys. So that we don't feel the sense that when you can't sing the words that are up here on the screen, these words are still present for us. In fact, we often try to sing songs that are at least honest in what they're presenting, but it is, um, there's not as many Psalm 22 kind of songs out there. We'll keep picking them. But this is the language of the persecuted people of God. And if you're not yet persecuted, if you are presently prospering, then prepare. How was that for alliteration? Hmm? Not yet persecuted, presently prospering, prepare for persecution. Dr. Seuss will help you out if you need to keep going. But here's the other thing about this psalm. You may have recognized the words. You may have recognized that it's not just moments like this down through the ages since this has been written that brought the psalm to mind. It's not just rabbis that have read it over the years for the people of God. It's not just preachers that have come before me that have read this verse for the people of God. There was a great moment that threw the spotlight on this psalm. And it comes from Matthew, from John, from Mark. Listen to these words. Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. 
But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. From John 19, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Mark 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Think of all Jesus could have said from the cross all the scriptures he could have quoted all the moments he could have pointed back to stories of a slaughtered lamb after slaughtered lamb after slaughtered lamb he didn't stories of victory about how the slaughtered messiah would actually be winning through the process he didn't Instead, in a moment so dark that heaven itself had to obey the spiritual reality that was being portrayed in that moment, the lightest part of the day becoming the darkest part of this story, Jesus, enduring that darkness, quotes this very psalm to say, I get it. And it's not just verse 1 that he got. It's not just the fact that in this moment, having addressed God as his father time after time after time, after teaching his disciples to pray, Father, this, Abba, Father, this, he now addresses that same one without those terms. Because no father would ever deny his child. Jesus said very, that very much. You guys you're evil. If your kid wants a fish, if your kid wants bread, you're not going to give him something like a stone or a scorpion. And you're evil. 
But God's not evil. And if he's your father, then he's going to listen to your pleas over and over. That's the way that he wanted to get the people of God to understand their potential relationship with God. And he could even say as he was talking to God, God, if they would only know you the way I know you, that it's, it's, it's kind of this oneness that is, that is true between us, that is so hard to grasp, so hard to communicate. If they could know what it meant that you and I are together like that so that they could be together, they could be together like that, and they could be together with you. Oh God, that would just be the answer to my prayer and yet the answer to that prayer was going to cost this moment where the son of God the true son of God the only son of God who was coming to fulfill the story when God was talking about his people and saying yo Pharaoh you got my boy you let my boy go you let my son go or I'm going to kill your son that's the way it's going to be my people who I've nurtured and I've mentored and I've brought through the story and I've brought through the water and I've brought through the wilderness that's my child it's my child it's my child and every one of those children turn away they run away they're scattered if they're the scribes and they think they're the good they're the older brother Jesus look at them he's like man you guys messed it up over and over and over, my relationship with you is to be the way that you care about your kids. And now the true and perfect son is crying out to the heavens. And the words he needs to use are these words you get to use. Why? Why can you address God as father? It's simply this, because Jesus couldn't. Why can you be positive that you will never be forsaken? Because in this moment, in this angel's brain's blowing moment, it looks like God loves his rebellious children more than his own son. It looks like God cares for the prodigals more than he cares for the exact image of his being sent to the earth in human form. The one person, the one Adam, the one child who never defied him, who never disobeyed him, who never dropped the ball, not once took up an agreement with his father and said, you take all that's been done and credit it to my account that when I would look up with you, I would say the best I've got is that you're God and you don't seem to care about me. Church, there's never been a greater injustice than the moment that this psalm meant to teach God's people to suffer was actually spoken by the only one who truly suffered. And I don't say that to minimize your suffering. I know your stories. I know your pain. I know the injustice. I, I, I don't totally know it. I know of it. Some of it I know more than I know others, but I know that you have suffered. And I don't mean in saying that you have not endured true suffering to say that you haven't struggled. It's just that David had an accusation under his request, his question, that was faulty. God, why aren't you listening to me? But God was actually inspiring him to tell him that God was not listening to him. True suffering is when the silence of God is because God 
can't listen to your prayer. And that's what the Son of God endured for us, fulfilling and perfecting the experience of these words. So if we looked at David, the composer, listen to Jesus who actually endured this. Jesus in danger, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My stung ticks, sticks to, the, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clo- clothing, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life, my precious life from the power of the dog. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day. But you literally don't answer. He was just up all night staring into the cup. Asking God, would you take this from me? But by night, I found no rest. We are, we are not making a connection because we're trying to be poetic. We're not linking the experience of Jesus to this psalm because somehow, ooh, tricky preacher work. Look at this. You see the parallels? No. Jesus said, me. Jesus on the cross in this moment said, have you ever prayed this psalm? I want you to know how God was able to hear you when you did. And for all those coming after me, whom he actually prayed for before experiencing this at the cross, for us, he said, should the words of Psalm 22 ever come to your lips? Should the experience of being forsaken and despised, disregarded and endangered ever be the story of my people Both now and to come, I want you to know how God the Father, my Father, will hear you. It's that I will endure the moment when he can't. John Calvin says it this way. There is not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself this same thing. According to the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God, while yet he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of sense and reason. But when such a perplexing thought takes entire possession of the mind of man, it overwhelms him in profound unbelief. But if faith comes to his aid against such a temptation, 
The same person who regarded God as having abandoned him beholds in the mirror of the promises the grace of God, which is hidden and distant. We've only read up to Psalm 21, or verse 21 in this psalm. There is an end. There is a conclusion. There is, there is a voice we can also gain more than just the voice of suffering and more than just the voice of the moment that Jesus perfected. But you can only move forward if you recognize that the only way we can ever speak to each other in our suffering is not truly to be able to say, I, I understand. But it is profoundly more significant to be able to say, I am so sorry. And I know the one who understands. I am so sorry for what it was like to be raised up in a family like the one you grew up in. I am so sorry for what it was like to be abandoned by friends you thought were true to you to the end. I am so sorry for the way you were despised and disregarded. I'm so sorry for the way that other people have looked at you, made pledges to you, and abandoned you. I'm sorry that our experience right now is to be mocked if we claim the name of Jesus. And I'm sorry it's going to get worse. And I can't say I understand exactly what it's like for you. But he does. We have a high priest established from the heavens and now returned to the heavens who intercedes on our behalf because he learned what it was to suffer. God subjected himself to the point that he would take up residence in our bodies so that he could be said to learn something he wouldn't have known or experienced without being in our place. And he did. He did. He's the one who could say, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. But he was not the one who could complete that verse. Instead, because he couldn't, we can. That verse continues, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There was a massive change from 21A to 21B where God shows up for David. Where he shows up for us because he didn't for Jesus. I find verse 21 to be the most perplexing part of this entire psalm. That the only way to fully understand it is to recognize that Jesus had to pause his experience midway through a verse. These dogs, these wild animals, would you save me from them? And God said, no. But you know, the fact that we have been saved it teaches us three things that we can, we can sing back to God. 
And the first you see there, bullet in, in the screen, you see it right there in verse 21. He has rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here's the amazing thing about that. He didn't rescue him, but he rescued me. He rescued me. <coughs> Man, this is a point. I hate this. See what that does. Guys, this is where you enter the story. This was David's. This was Jesus. It's now yours. Pursued by an invisible enemy that has tormented the people of God for ages. Sometimes having that same energy of that enemy show up in the faces of other physical people in front of us. People who have wanted to do us harm. People who have neglected us. We have truly been saved. Because the greatest danger... It's not the little things we could experience on this earth. It's the greatest danger is that all of those injustices and ills, all those problems would so embitter your soul that you would point to God and say, you are inept, incompetent, and uncaring. And church, God has saved you from that. You do not have to suffer that way. Instead, because of what Jesus endured, we can say, God, you rescued me, not him, but me. Well, in light of that, I'm going to tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, verse 22, I will praise you. So all you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Why? Because not only does he rescue the needy, secondly, though, he hears the hurting. Verse 23 again, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Or to personalize that last verse a little bit more, he has not hidden his face from me. He didn't rescue Jesus, but he rescued me. He didn't, he didn't listen to Jesus, but he listens to me. What should we do in light of that? We should lift our voices <coughs> in praise and teach others to do the same. For from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will before, perform before those who fear him. Because the afflicted shall not only be heard, but the affliction shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This psalm has been the psalm of God's people. And when Jesus arrived on the story, in case we were going to miss it, in case we were going to miss the conclusion of his story, Luke starts us right in the very beginning, right? Zechariah, who demands to see exactly how God's going to work, that guy needs to stop talking just now. Let's listen to somebody else. Let's listen to Mary. Let's listen to the peasant girl. Let's listen to her as she says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And when Jesus makes his way onto the scene and he tries to figure out who he's, he, the one sent from heaven, is going to engage with on the earth, 
He doesn't go for the rich and the powerful. He doesn't go for the successful. He doesn't go for the righteous. He's the doctor come for the sick. He's the one come here for, as he said, the poor in spirit who are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are blessed for they get to be comforted. And those who are hungry and thirsting simply for righteousness are blessed. Because those are the ones who are going to be satisfied. Church, if we're going to believe this psalm, it will upend everything about your commitments in life. We are so American, so rich, so Western, so independent, so in love with our own stories of of beating off those who have oppressed us and bringing ourselves up and becoming successful and independent and and prosperous and, and comfortable. And Jesus comes and says, actually, I'm not interested in any of that. I want you when you mourn. I want you when you're thirsty. I want you when you feel impoverished in soul. Because I want to give you the kingdom. I want to satisfy you. I want to comfort you. And I want you to know that in my way of reigning over this earth, those are the ones I bless. And if we truly believe that, Wouldn't it change the way that we thought about all the resources God's poured out for us? What we want to raise our kids up to experience. Because the lie we're being fed right now is you need to find a way not to suffer. And you need to raise your kids in such a way that they don't suffer. We need to build communities that rally around the fact that God loves us so much that we don't suffer. We need to be able to come and pray to God and say, God, thank you that you haven't made me like those people over there. Look at what we do, God. Look at the way that we're successful, God. Look at the way that we're faithful, God. And God's like, I don't hear that prayer at all. I just, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. But if we came and we became a community of people, we became families, we became individuals who were just coming before the Lord and saying, I am so deficient. I, I, got, I got nothing. So have mercy on me, a sinner. And we're aware that the sin that I bring to the table, the weakness I've contributed, not the weakness done to others, the way that actually, if I'm telling a real story, other people have been the victims of my life. If I owned up to that, I would be aware I deserved everything Jesus endured on the cross. I deserve to be neglected. I deserve to be despised and endangered and disregarded. And yet... He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And oddly enough, that promise in Hebrews comes right after this command. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because you're very, very rich and successful and prosperous. So stop wanting more, you greedy pigs. No, that's not the language of it. In every culture, in every age, in every time, money has been the inoculating idol that has prevented us from being able to hear our need for God. And what the author of Hebrews says is actually keep your lives free of all that stuff. 
Because you need claim one thing in your ledger, and that's you have God, and he's enough. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. How in the world did that happen? And if that's true, then we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that that surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And if we learn to pray this way, if we learn to echo the Psalms of lament and even those of imprecation, even those where we're asking God, what are you doing? doing we can then say we're afflicted in every way we're perplexed in every way we're persecuted in every way we're struck down in every way and yet trinity church will not be crushed will not be driven to despair will not be forsaken because god's people will not be destroyed Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want these words to be our words. Because we want to claim that Jesus' suffering stood in our place for us. May we learn to suffer, to cry out, to beg, Lord, for your ear, not on our merits, but because we realize what we deserve, Jesus endured. And what Jesus deserved, we're given. May we have no other confidence in life or in death that we belong wholly to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.